Well, hello there. This is Stuart Haynes, and welcome to the iFormerX podcast, where we explore the evidence that informs ambulatory care pharmacy practice. iFormerX is made possible by volunteers from around the globe who serve as peer reviewers, authors of commentaries, post comments, and donate money to make this community of practice possible. So thank you for joining us today, and I hope you find this resource incredibly valuable. One of the most popular topics that we post commentaries about and talk about on this podcast is anticoagulation therapy. And it's one of my favorite subjects as I was the director of an antithrombosis service for many years. I slowly transitioned out of that practice about a decade ago as the direct oral anticoagulants or DOACs were really taking off. And I think as people already know, the number of indications for the DOACs has gradually increased over the past few years as the evidence grows and as our experience deepens. One of the most challenging patient populations to treat are patients with the antiphospholipid syndrome. Uh, They're very prone to recurrent thrombotic events and often require lifelong anticoagulation therapy. Moreover, they are particularly challenging to treat with warfarin because the antiphospholipid antibodies they produce can interfere with the prothrombin time measurement and cause unusual changes in the INRs. So the use of DOACs in this population would naturally have some advantages as they are simpler than warfarin to take, require less frequent laboratory monitoring, and are not prone to as many drug-drug and drug-food interactions. But of course, first and foremost, the DOACs must be effective for this indication. And that's why I think a recent study published in the journal Blood Advances, which compared warfarin therapy with apixaban, was so important to review. And here to tell us all about this study and its implication and practice are Leslie Walters and Jennifer Carey. Dr. Walters is the anticoagulation program manager, and Dr. Carey is a clinical pharmacy practitioner, and they both practice at the Robert J. Dole VA Medical Center in Wichita, Kansas. Leslie, it's great to have you back on the iFormerX podcast, and Jennifer, thanks for being a first-time contributor. Welcome. Thanks, Stuart. We're happy to be here, and thanks for having us. Yes, thank you. So, Jennifer, before we get started, I'm wondering if you can start us off with a brief discussion about the thrombotic antiphospholipid syndrome, or TAPS. How common is it? Who is most likely to experience it? And what kinds of thrombotic events it's associated with? And why is it so challenging to manage? Um, So, thrombotic antiphospholipid syndrome, which I'm going to refer to as TAPS, Um, is characterized by a thrombus, it's either venous or arterial, or it can be shown as an adverse pregnancy outcome. Many clinicians use the Sapporo criteria to diagnose TAPS, so the patients will need to meet one of the clinical criteria that I just reviewed and one laboratory criteria for diagnosis. The laboratory criteria include lupus anticoagulant or an anticardiolipin antibody or an anti-beta-2 glycoprotein antibody. It can be either of these, but they need to be tested twice and they need to be positive at least 12 weeks apart on both tests. So approximately half of patients with TAPS have primary disease, while the other half have a systemic autoimmune disease. 
Specifically, systemic lupus erythematous, or SLE, is one of the most common present in about 35% of cases. So these antibodies um, that are present in TAPS, they've been shown to impact endothelial cells, the monocytes, platelets, and interact with the coagulation pathway, which increases that risk of thrombus. Uh, the antibodies produce a procoagulant state, mainly mediated by increased synthesis of tissue factor and thromboxin A2. This plus the interaction with coagulation regulatory proteins like protein C, prothrombin, and plasmin can often provoke thrombosis. There have also been multiple mechanisms that has been identified to possibly play a role in the pregnancy loss. These include interference with annexin A5, which is a natural anticoagulant in our body, and abnormalities in the placenta placement. Additionally, the antiphospholipid antibody binding reduces the secretion of human chorionic gonadotropin, or HCG. The antibodies also might trigger an inflammatory response that can result in tropoplast damage. And the tropoplast, which I was not aware of this until I started looking into TAPS a little bit further, supplies the embryo with nourishment and later becomes a major part of the placenta. TAPS is not known to be common in the general population, in 2019, it was reported that the annual incident of TAPS was 2 per 100,000 population, so it's a pretty rare disease. However, it appears that TAPS can be a contributing factor to many of the clinical events without a diagnosis, so possibly it is underdiagnosed. In 2013, a large retrospective analysis looked at patients with certain clinical indications for TAPS, such as pregnancy loss or myocardial infarctions, and found that the antiphospholipid antibodies were in approximately 9% of patients with pregnancy loss, 14% of patients with stroke, 11% of patients with a myocardial infarction, and 10% of patients with a deep vein thrombosis, or DVT. This suggests that in the United States alone, those antiphospholipid antibodies are associated with approximately 50,000 pregnancy losses, 110,000 strokes, 100,000 myocardial infarctions, and about 30,000 DVTs annually. And according to a large European cohort study conducted in 2009, the mortality rate of the antiphospholipid syndrome during a five-year period was 5.3%, with the thrombotic complications um, being the most common cause of death in these patients. And even with treatment, the risk of recurrent thrombosis remains high in this group of patients varying between 3 to 24%. And studies have shown that even increasing the intensity of the anticoagulant, so let's say putting a patient on morphine with an INR goal between 3 to 4, does not reduce the probability of recurrence. So even though this is termed a rare disease, it may be underdiagnosed and overall has negative clinical outcomes. So discovering better treatment options to improve these patients' quality of life and decreasing the mortality rate is actively being studied, which is why we are here today. The study that the two of you reviewed is entitled Apixaban Compared with Warfarin to Prevent Thrombosis in Thrombotic Antiphospholipid Syndrome, a randomized trial, and it appeared in the March 2022 issue of the journal Blood Advances, which is published by the American Society of Hematology. Of course, everyone should read this paper for themselves, but I suspect and many of our listeners don't subscribe to this journal. So I'm hopeful that you can give us a brief summary of the study methods and the key results. Yes, yeah, so this non-inferiority pilot study used a probe design, which means it was a prospective open-label blinded event. 
Uh, patients were eligible if they had a history of TAPS and had received anticoagulation for secondary prevention of thrombosis for at least six months. There were a few exclusion criteria, including uh, requiring anticoagulation for another non-approved indication, receiving dual antiplatelet therapy or aspirin at a dose greater than 165 milligrams daily, pregnant or planning to become pregnant, a life expectancy less than a year, some common laboratory values that can increase the risk of bleed, including hemoglobin less than 8, a platelet count less than 50, creatinine greater than 2.5, or a total bilirubin of greater than 1.5, the upper limit of normal. And if they've had developed a thrombosis in the past while well, warfarin with an INR greater than 2. Originally, patients enrolled were randomized to either apixaban 2.5 milligrams twice daily or warfarin with a target INR between 2 to 3 for 12 months. The trial did decide upon that reduced dose of apixaban based on the Amplify Extension Study, which concluded that extended VTE prevention were similar between the 2.5 milligram dose and the 5 milligram dose twice daily. So reducing the dose of apixaban uh, would allow for more patient enrollment, specifically those with renal disease, so they were hoping this would increase the likelihood of significant results. Follow-up was done frequently about every two to three months, and the anti-clot treatment scales, or ACTS, survey was assessed at each follow-up for patient satisfaction. At the end, all patients were transitioned to warfarin using a standardized protocol unless it was elected to continue apixaban at the discretion of the treating physician. Primary outcome included the combined rate of thrombosis and vascular death, and the primary safety outcomes were major and clinically relevant non-major bleeding. So 48 patients were enrolled, 23 randomized to apixaban and 25 to warfarin. Adherence to apixaban was 97.3%, and warfarin time in therapeutic range was at 60%. During this study, two protocol changes were instituted based on recommendations by the Data Safety Monitoring Board. After the 25th patient was randomized, the dose of apixaban was increased to 5 milligrams twice daily for all patients. This was due to the observation of three strokes occurring in the apixaban group during a routine review. After the 30th patient was randomized, subjects with prior arterial thrombosis were excluded. This was due to an additional three strokes that were noted in the apixaban group. There was one major bleeding event in the warfarin arm and no clinical relevant non-major bleeding events in either arms. Finally, as mentioned previously, the patient satisfaction was assessed using the ACT survey and it is with no surprise that patients in the apixaban group had significantly higher scores compared to patients on warfarin throughout these 12 months. As anticoagulation therapy clinical trials go, uh, this study was rather small with less than 50 subjects enrolled. However, the thrombotic antiphospholipid syndrome, or TAPS, is, is rather uncommon, and even a multi-center clinical trial is unlikely to be able to enroll hundreds of patients. So I think we need to take the, the results of this trial with a grain of salt, but I also think this is really important information that's clinically relevant. So let's talk about the potential strengths and weaknesses of this study. Do you have any concerns about the design and conduct of the study? And in a small study like this, confounding variables can really influence the results. So are there any confounders that you think we should be noting in this study? So I think the study had one big strength that did allow for us to glean more from it. 
they included, quote, normal APS patients. When I say that, I'm talking about the fact that they had lab-confirmed cases as well as just historical cases. We all know in practice that getting the original labs or hematology report is difficult, especially in older cases. Additionally, they included patients with one event and patients with five events. And when we look at the cases that failed during the time of the study, the spread of confirmed and historical cases, as well as the number of prior events, is pretty evenly spread. The first thing that shocked me when I picked up this article was that they used a secondary prophylaxis dose of apixaban. Two prior studies chose treatment doses of rivaroxaban, not the long-term prophylaxis dose. In its defense, both the rivaroxaban trials were started after the apixaban trial, so they would have had the benefit of seeing the required protocol change. However, TAPS is a disease state with a high rate of rethrombosis. These are not patients where I personally would have taken my first shot at the lower dose. If we want to examine this objectively, another way to look at it is that patients who had experienced multiple VTE events were explicitly excluded from the Amplify Extension trial, which examined the effective prophylactic dose of apixaban. Additionally, in the definition of TAPS is included patients who have had a stroke or arterial events. DOACs have not been proven effective in this study population. So most of the patients in this study would not have even made it into Amplify Extension. It's clear that this was an exploratory trial. It was never intended to meet power. They needed over 4,000 patients for 80% power to detect a 1% difference in the thrombosis rate, but the plan for enrollment was 200 patients. So Leslie, what's the bottom line? Uh, this study suggests that apixaban is less effective in terms of preventing thrombotic events than warfarin in patients with TAPS. Is this study a fluke or do the results make sense? And would you ever consider using a DOAC in someone with the thrombotic antiphospholipid syndrome? And if so, who? So as a practitioner who sees patients with TAPS, I was really hopeful that DOACs would be a viable option for treatment. The indefinite duration of treatment and the younger age of presentation are both factors that affect a patient's adherence throughout the course of their life. But honestly, it felt like a stretch to me. DOACs treat one step in the coagulation cascade, which is sufficient for patients without a coagulation disorder. But going back to Jenny's description of the disease state process, there are three possible antiphospholipid antibodies that affect multiple types of blood cells at multiple points in the coagulation cascade. So personally, it made sense that a drug hitting multiple stops in that pathway, like warfarin, would be more effective than a DOAC. Additionally, we have the benefit of other trials with rivaroxaban to know that this study was not a fluke. One rivaroxaban study even stopped the trial early, not due to slow recruitment like the apixaban study, but because the advisory board deemed it unsafe to continue. 
11 patients in the river roxaban arm had a primary outcome versus two patients in the warfarin arm. Arterial events like the four patients who experienced ischemic stroke and three who had a myocardial infarction occurred in the river roxaban arm. None of the patients in the warfarin arm experienced an arterial event. The study also mentions that there are trials underway to see if a higher dose of DOAC might be effective, but I'm kind of skeptical on how that is going to affect long-term bleed risk versus the long-term bleed risk associated with warfarin. Personally, there aren't many cases in which I would try a DOAX in TAPS, but we've all had those patients on warfarin and can't figure out why their time in therapeutic range is so poor. However, if a patient was a single positive TAPS case with only one prior venous event and no family history of arterial events and was refusing all other care, including the low molecular weight heparin, I might try a full dose DOAC with three month follow up and extensive counseling on all of the symptoms of venous and arterial clots in addition to stroke. But the number of times we're going to happen on this patient is pretty rare. Well, Jennifer Leslie, thanks so much for being here today and talking with us about the treatment of the antiphospholipid syndrome. We've traditionally used warfarin in this patient population to prevent recurrent thrombotic events. And while warfarin isn't easy to use or perfectly effective, this study should give all of us great pause before recommending a patient be switched to a DOAC. So tell us what you think. Do you have any experience managing these patients? And what have you been doing in your practice? Remember, only iFormerX members can leave comments. So if you're not already a member, be sure to sign up today. Any health professional can become a member of iFormerX. It's, it's free. And for those of you who are board-certified ambulatory care pharmacists, you can earn board recertification and continuing education credit for listening to this podcast and reading the written commentary on the iFormerX website. We've partnered with the American Pharmacists Association to offer select content in their ambulatory care board prep and recertification program, which is available on demand anytime, anywhere. So. Click on the link posted below the commentary on our website to learn more. And lastly, I want to say thank you to Zencaster, who made their software available for free during the pandemic. Zencaster is an online audio and video recording tool that allows us to produce this podcast. Now, this is not a plug for their software, and we haven't received any advertising revenue from Zencaster or any commercial supporters for that matter. It's merely to say thank you to the many online businesses out there that really stepped up to keep the world moving forward and who enabled us to achieve our mission here at iFormerX. Without products like Zencaster, this work simply would not be possible. Well, until next time, this is Stuart Haynes, editor-in-chief of iFormerX, signing off. Be safe, my friends. Mm-hmm.